how's everyone doing today? Rainy day. Uh, everyone always a little bit kind of uh, sleepy when we come in with the clouds. It would have been nice to sleep in today, but I'm glad you guys are here and spending some time with us. We're in the middle of this series we're calling uh, Get Useful, and we're looking at areas of our lives that affect our ability to be useful vessels uh, and, and containers for the gospel. So I want to kind of catch you guys up a little bit about um, my week. A few of you guys know that every January I go away for a few days up to Atlanta. There's a monastery just southeast of Atlanta called the Monastery of the Holy Spirit. And uh, I go up there each January to take uh, around three days of mostly silence and uh, solitude where I just kind of let God speak to me. Those are just a few images of, of what life is up there like. It's very rhythmic, very steady, very simple, and it's a great time for me to slow down. Uh, everyone always asks me, he's like, hey, did you have a, you know, how was your week? And it's always difficult to answer a question like this. I don't know if you've ever taken any time of solitude, but essentially uh, what happens in solitude is the voices, the noise, exterior noise that we're so used to, you know, through media, through radio, through just uh, interaction with all our friends, all those voices quiet down. And when they quiet down, you know, two things happen, and in a way they're almost diametrically opposed. The one thing that, that happens ideally is that you get back in touch with the idea of how much God loves you, right? And so that's a great thing. But uh, usually what also happens is that you also get in touch with areas of your life that are still rough and you still need to really take a hard look at it. And it can be challenging. So people come up to me who knew I went up there like, hey, how, how was your week? Did, you know, was it good? And I'm like, it's really hard to answer that because when you take honest looks at yourself and really evaluate yourself of who you are, it's never, never fun. But, you know, in my case, and, and the way it's supposed to work is right alongside that is this voice of God saying, you know, Eric, I love you. And Eric, I've got more for you. So that was my week. And um, I wanted to kind of let you guys know about something that's really cool that's happening in just a few weeks. Because what we're going to do for you guys is offer you a, a very short retreat of the same type of experience. So on February 17th, it's a Saturday, uh, we're going to do a one-day guided solitude experience. And you can think about this as, uh, you know, we have men's uh, retreats and advances, uh, women's retreats. I just took a retreat. This is a one-day retreat. And so uh, we're going to ask everyone to kind of pay because we're going to Camp Weed. We are renting the facility. We are providing lunch. We're going to provide you with some materials and uh, we're going to guide you through the interaction, guide you through the experience of solitude. Because it's one of the most important things that we can do, I think, especially in the 21st century. There's limited space, and you can find that uh, on my E3. If you need help kind of navigating that, make sure you go to the welcome booth outside. So when I came up here, or when Chris came up here, or when Lori came up here, science tells uh, us that in about two seconds, you have started to make judgments about me. Whether you know me or not, within two seconds, our minds look at something and start to make evaluations. You know, and they're all pretty obvious evaluations for most of us. You know, I'm, I'm, I'm a white man. Um, I, 
reluctantly middle-aged or whatever that means nowadays, wearing glasses, you know, who knows? Two seconds into a visual experience and you are, you are categorizing and making evaluative statements. And this is natural to who we are. It is natural and even a part of our wiring to do this. There's a guy uh, named, um, his, his last name is Kahneman, and he wrote a book a few years ago called Thinking Fast and Slow. It's an amazing book about how we have these two thinking systems in our brains that we've been given. One is very, very quick. It makes very uh, snap judgments. It looks at something, makes a quick decision, and then you know, we sort of behave usually emotionally out of that decision. And then there is this, you know, as the title would suggest, a slower process of thinking. And a lot of times those two things are uh, really fighting against each other. The decision or the, uh, the evaluation we might make very quickly sometimes is changed when we think more slowly about something. But two seconds, two seconds is all that it takes for you not only to kind of see things about me, but then also to start associating the things you see about me or anybody else with past experiences, with expectations, with messages that you've received throughout your life. Two seconds, two seconds. And again, this is natural to who we are. It is part of our wiring that we've been given to make sense of our world. But let me, let me just show you a picture uh, real quick, just kind of by way of illustrating something. Any, all right, FedEx logo. Anybody ever seen the arrow in the FedEx logo? The saying goes, once you see the arrow in the FedEx logo, you can never not see the arrow in the FedEx logo. It is between the E and the X. You guys can leave now. I've done my job. <laughs> Once you see the arrow in the FedEx logo, you will never not see the arrow. And sometimes these evaluations that we make within just such a short time are like that with people. And once we see something about a person or about a group of people, sometimes that's all we will ever see. We will never not see whatever it is that decision or that evaluation uh, is. And this is when the natural gift of evaluation and making very quick decisions, this is when that gift can get a little bit sideways. The, the fast thinking does very, very good at identifying a pattern and, and, and slotting things into, hey, is, is this a good person or a bad person? Is this a, a threat or is this a safe experience? But when you do too much of that and you never examine it, sometimes uh, we begin to project maybe one experience into a whole category of people or a whole category of experiences. Just like once you see the FedEx aerial, you will always see the FedEx aerial. Sometimes if you make an evaluation about one person, you will tend to make that evaluation about every single person that conforms to that pattern. So this is where uh, things get a little bit challenging for us as people. 
And there's another phenomenon that happens in our head called confirmation bias. And that is the idea that our brains are, we will naturally sort of look for reinforcing uh, data to the decision we've just made. So once you make a decision about me, for whatever that is, you will then begin to look at what I do and, I, and the things I say and the way I behave as a way to reinforce the decision that you just made. It's just the way we're wired. Our brains naturally do this thing. And this is why what James writes to this church in Jerusalem is so important for us today. Because we're talking today about bias and James puts it in, in the term favoritism. But listen to his words again. He starts off by saying, true devotion, the kind that is pure and faultless before God the Father is this, and it's to care for orphans and widows in their difficulties and to keep the world from, from contaminating us. And the way I would summarize this or kind of connect this to some dots here is that James is saying essentially what we've been saying. And that is the idea that like, look, you can't just say I love God and, and I'm going to do this prayer thing and this church thing and this spirituality thing and then never let it affect how you treat other people. You can't just say these words and sing these songs and then never let it have an exterior expression in your Monday through Saturday life. Right, what we do on Sunday has to matter for what we do Monday through Friday. And so he says, look, true devotion is to care for other people, to have this, have this thing that we do affect our, our lives day to day. And then he goes on and he says in a particular way, brothers and sisters, when you show favoritism, you deny the faithfulness of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has been resurrected in glory, Everybody's the same in God's eyes. Imagine, he says, two people coming into your meeting and one has a gold ring and fine clothes while the other is poor, dressed in filthy rags. He's basically saying it's two seconds. It was two seconds in James's day. It's two seconds in our day. Somebody comes in, they look a certain way and you make a decision. And so you say, look, suppose you were to, to take a special notice of the one wearing fine clothes and say, oh, here's an excellent place sit here, and then uh, to the poor person, you say, stand over there, or here, sit at my feet. Wouldn't you have shown favoritism among yourselves and become, James pulls no punches if you've ever read the book of James, evil-minded judges. So James takes this idea of like, look, uh, someone will come into your meeting and you're gonna make a snap decision, but if you start behaving on that snap decision and showing favoritism, and we're just gonna connect that today and say that's bias, you are drifting off course with what it means to be a vessel of God. And again, like uh, this concept that we're taking is, uh, comes from a letter that a guy named Paul wrote to a guy named Timothy, where he tells Timothy to, uh, make sure that he's a worthy vessel, and we've just put some bowls up here. That's the word in the New Testament. Make sure that you're a worthy vessel to contain the gospel, God's good news. 
And so we've looked at the different things that can affect our ability to be a worthy vessel. We've looked at money and finances. There's some people going through FPU right now who are having their lives rocked in such a good way right now because they're finding out that there's hope for getting their finances right. Not just in God's eyes, but so that they can make a difference in the world. We've looked at how your time affects your ability to be a worthy vessel, a vessel, an effective vessel for God. And last week, we looked at technology. And today, we're looking at what our bias can do. And so we've been using this metaphor. Remember Clifford? He's been the money dog. He's been the time dog. He's been the technology dog. Now, today, Clifford is the bias dog. It's come about, it comes from the idea of like, we just let these things run amok in our lives. When God has actually given us the ability and the call to make the things of our life behave. So we actually have the ability to make Clifford behave if he's the money dog. We can make our time behave. We can make our technology, believe it or not, promise you, we can make it behave. And today we're going to look at this natural thing that we do that can drift into so much hardship, and that's bias. Sometimes we just let it run amok in our life, and we never take a step back and go, what is this doing, and how, how do I get beyond it? And I don't think I have to uh, be too explicit about this to tell you how important this is in the 21st century in the United States. We have a struggle here to, to stay unified, even in the kingdom of God, even in the church. And I'm gonna spend some time talking about it. And I pray that your hearts are open. I pray that your mind is open today. Because I might say some things that challenge you. I might say some things that you could just go, amen. But this is so important. We can make our biased dog behave, even without condemning it. We can say, look, this is a natural part of being human. But how do we make sure it doesn't get twisted and turn into something where we're actually treating people differently according to the judgments we make? So I'm gonna walk you through a few ways that I feel like bias just gets us. The three ways that it's hurting the church globally and maybe hurting you. The first thing I would say is like, look, bias is mostly based on notoriously inaccurate snap judgments. All right, we've been given these two processing tools, fast thinking, slow thinking. Each one has a role in our life. The thing about very quick processing and thinking, it's wrong a lot. It just is. Like psychologists have studied this. Like we slot things into patterns because sometimes we have to make a quick judgment about things, but it doesn't always mean that it's right. So that's why we have the slow processing thinking. Remember, Kahneman's thinking, thinking fast, thinking slow. Both of the systems should collaborate to give us wisdom. But we have this tendency to look and then we see one thing and then we never not see it. So let me just tell you a couple stories. Uh, there's a story in the Bible, in the Old Testament, about uh, a king. And uh, Israel wants a king. And so they demand a king. And so there's a guy named Samuel who says, okay, the people want a king. I'll go looking for a king. And he comes across a group of people and he sees a guy who is taller than everybody else in the group. The guy's name is Saul. Saul ends up being the first king of Israel. 
And, and, and he, in a way, uh, there's, there's a particular application for this because Saul turns out to be a pretty lousy king. And God actually ends up rejecting Saul. And Samuel has to go looking for another king. So God directs Samuel to this family. And uh, the, the father is a guy named Jesse, and Jesse has many sons, and, and all the sons start coming out. And, and the first couple sons, they're tall, like Saul. And Samuel goes, oh, I think, God, I think that's the one, right? Even Samuel, he got in the Bible. <laughs> Two seconds. He goes, that's a, oh, that's a tall guy. He must be the one. And God, the text says, says directly to Samuel, no, no, no. And the text says, God looks at the heart, not at the exterior. And eventually, Samuel gets to a guy named David, who ends up being the model king for Israel. And, and we still have this problem today. Let me show you a picture. This is uh, Warren Harding. 29th president of the United States. Warren Harding looked presidential. If you read the stories of, of his election and his path to power, he was a nobody, but he looked, he was taller than anybody else. And he looked stately. And so people got around him and they said, man, we can elect this guy. Problem is, Warren Harding is considered one of the worst presidents in the history of presidency in the United States. He died shortly in office, uh, shortly after assuming office. One other thought. Do you know that uh, in the general population of the United States, and this is in men, 14.5% of men are over six foot tall. In Fortune 500 companies, 58% of the CEOs are over six foot tall. In, uh, in the general population, about 3.9% of men are over six foot two. In about half of the Fortune 500 companies, 30% uh, of the CEOs are over six foot two. We still do this. From Samuel to now, we look at a person's physical appearance and we go, oh, X, Y, Z is true about them. They're a leader. They are CEO material. They're king material. And we make a judgment and we say, oh, and all of, a sudden, all of along, God is saying, no, I look at the heart, not at the, the, the stature of a person. Let me, let me get a little bit more uh, close to home. Um, I have had some pretty funny but, and pretty not funny judgments made about me. I'm going to share just a few, okay? Um, so actually, the first time I went to the monastery, I went with a group of people. And uh, uh, it was a guided, it was like a workshop weekend. And so one of the monks there made a reference to uh, there are some people here who are actually exploring becoming a monk, and uh, there was a woman who was a part of our group, and she looked at me, and she said, oh, you are one of those people who's exploring being a monk. And I'm like, no, not, not true at all. Like, and don't tell my wife that, because she'll freak out. Like, 
you know, and I don't know what it was in my demeanor. You know, I didn't, I didn't have robes on or anything like that. But she made a judgment that just said, oh, you must be, you know, and it wasn't. It, it, I actually found it an honor, right? Um, years ago, um, when I was at a, our church in, in Chicago, we used to operate a warming center. And uh, it was just a place for guys uh, in the cold of Chicago uh, who didn't have a place to go where they could just come and, and eat lunch and just stay warm. And uh, I felt prompted once by God to start serving there. And I would just go and I'd spend time there and, and try to learn to talk to guys and just listen for their story. And there was one guy there and his name was Flacco. And he was a Hispanic guy and, and um, he was tough and he was tough. He was real quiet and he was real intense. But over time, like he and I got to be friends. And, uh, you know, I took him home a couple times, just drove him to his space. And eventually he started uh, opening up to me and he said, and uh, he said, hey, he's like, Casey, he's like, you know why nobody would talk to you? And my answer was like, because I'm shy and I would just sit there. And he's like, he's like, nobody would talk to you because we thought you were a cop. And like, first of all, let me say like, if that's an insult to any law enforcement people, I apologize. It was him, not me. And I said, what? And he said, yeah, you look like a cop. Like you came in and because you just looked around and you just observed the room. He's like, we all looked around because... Those guys all have a lot of experience with the law enforcement community, most of it not positive, and they said, he's a cop. So, and, 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 and we worked through that, and actually, uh, before, I, before I left to come down here, he had bought me uh, a Chicago police, like, winter coat, you know, and it was, like, it was like the best gift I ever got. But even those guys made a quick snap decision about me that was utterly wrong, right? And they weren't mean, they weren't bad, but it, they, they were way off base. I was there to serve them. Also, one time in Chicago, I was walking with a friend of mine. And uh, we were just walking down the street. And uh, a woman came up to us, and she just started yelling at us. And we were like, what is going on? And she just started, she just started like, it was insult after insult. And we were like, what is going on? And then she looked at us, and she said, I hope you both get AIDS, and die. Oh, no. In her mind, she had decided that me and my friend were, were gay. And that was a snap decision that had a lot of cost, not necessarily for me because like, we were just like, that's not true. But that's what these snap decisions can do to people. Imagine the people like who... Uh, you know, the decisions that other people make are not utterly wrong, but they still lead other people to make pronouncing statements like that. Or for people uh, who have, people of color in this, in this country who endure statements like that all the time. And, you know, I've heard it from so many of my, of my African-American brothers and sisters. They're like, I can't stop being black. I can't take that suit off and still people make a decision and there's something in their heart that has led them to say, well, I've learned to see this thing in this person so I can never not see it. And there's something in their mind that just says, well, so therefore, I'm going to make a decision in terms of my speech or in terms of what, I, what anger I give into. And it's all based on not seeing the heart the decisions we make about people often are wrong because we never sit and go like, 
actually, how can I might be wrong about this? Why don't you tell me who you really are? And sometimes these things have enormous costs in the world. Imagine what it's like for a person who is on the receiving end of not just a bias, but anger and hatred. Imagine what that's like for them in their soul. So the second thing that uh, bias can do to us as the church is it impairs our mission in the world. Not just because we sometimes get known for people who are more against things than we are for things, but let me tell you an impactful story that comes from the Old Testament again. Uh, It's one of my favorite books of the Bible, but it's really an odd book. It's the book of Jonah. It's about a guy named, you guessed it, Jonah, right? What's the big thing that everybody knows about Jonah if you went to vacation Bible school? It's the whale, it's the fish. Jonah is the story of what happens when you let bias affect your sense of mission in the world. So the, the, the synopsis of the story is Jonah's a prophet. He gets told to go to a city called Nineveh, which is in a place called Assyria. And he runs away from God and he tries to avoid it. Uh, he ends up getting thrown overboard uh, into the belly of a fish. The fish vomits him up on the, on the beach. I don't have time to explain all that right now. What I want you to do is focus in on what happens because eventually uh, Jonah goes to Nineveh and he tells them what God told him to say, which is basically turn around Nineveh. You know, get your act right, Nineveh. And uh, I'll kind of explain why this is so explosive. But let me show you first what happens when he does this in Nineveh. So in Jonah chapter three, this is what the, the king, the leader of Nineveh in the Assyrian empire, how he responds to Jonah's pronouncement and God's message. Uh, the king says, let humans and animals alike put on mourning clothes, which is in and of itself hilarious. Chickens dressed in mourning clothes. And let them all call upon God forcefully. And let all persons stop their evil behavior and the violence that is under their control. And then the king says, who, he, he says, who knows? Maybe God will see this turning around and turn from his wrath so that we might not perish. And then The text says, God saw what they were doing, that the folks in Nineveh, the Assyrians, had ceased their evil behavior. So God stopped planning to destroy them, and he did not do it. Now, listen to what Jonah's response is. But Jonah thought this was utterly wrong. Jonah thought this was utterly wrong. Wrong. Now, before we get too far down the road, let me explain to you what's going on in Jonah's head. Because the Assyrian Empire in this time was considered one of the most notoriously evil, violent empires the world had seen. All right? Everybody in the ancient world feared and hated the Assyrians. This is not just Bible stuff. Their violence, their torture is well documented in the ancient world. And let me show you what another prophet, a guy named Nahum, 
Let me show you what God, how God talks about the Assyrians in the, in the book of Nahum. <laughs> this is crazy. This is like so depressing. Doom, city of bloodshed. That's Nineveh, by the way. Doom, city of bloodshed, all deceit, full of plunder. Prey cannot get away. Cracking whip and rumbling wheel, galloping horse and careening chariot, charging cavalry, flashing sword and glittering spear, countless slain, masses of corpses, endless dead bodies. They stumble over their dead bodies. And this is like one of the most incredible sentences in the, whole, in the Old Testament. Because of the many whorings of the whore, the lovely graces of the mistress of sorceries, the one who sells nations by means of her whorings and peoples by means of her sorceries. God says, look, I am against you, Nineveh, proclaims the Lord of heavenly forces. I will lift your skirts over your face. I will show nations your nakedness and kingdoms your dishonor. I will throw disgusting things at you. I will treat you with contempt and make you a spectacle. Then all who look at you will recoil from you and say, Nineveh has been devastated. Who will lament for her? Where could I possibly seek comforters for you? This is the paradigm that Jonah's operating under. And when God tells him, go to Nineveh, tell them to repent and turn around. And the king does it and they repent and turn around and God does not destroy them. And Jonah says, ah, wait a minute. Don't you know, God, who the Assyrians are? I made a decision about who the Assyrians are, God, and yet you're being good to them, God. God, uh, you're utterly wrong. That's why Jonah responds the way he does. And then he even goes this, he prayed to the Lord, which is like what, a really bad idea to, to like be mad in this way and go, Come on, God, come on, Lord. Wasn't this precisely my point when I was back in my own land? This is why I fled to Tarshish earlier. In other words, he says, I didn't go on that mission. I didn't go where you told me to go because I had already made a decision about who the Assyrians are. I know that you are a merciful and compassionate God, very patient, full of faithful love and willing not to destroy, at this point, Lord, you may as well take my life from me because it would be better for me to die than to live. All because God showed mercy to somebody that Jonah thought he shouldn't show mercy to. All because of Jonah's bias. All because of somebody that Jonah decided, no, these people are not quite as worthy of your love, God, as me. And then God said, is your anger a good thing? Which has got to be like the ultimate rhetorical question, you know? Is your anger a good thing? And maybe he would say that to you this morning. Is your anger a good thing? If you've made decisions about people based on political allegiance, skin color, socioeconomic status, preference of where you go and what you do, is your anger a good thing? Is your anger a good thing? Have you decided that certain people are beyond God's love? Because if you have, then you've stopped being missional in the world, which is what we're called to do. And your bias is impairing the mission. 
The book of Jonah ends this way, like Jonah gets angry at God again for something else that happened. He's just an angry guy at this point. But, and, and the text ends in this, the Lord said, you pitied this shrub that grew up over you, which you didn't work for and you didn't raise. It grew in a night and perished in a night. God's saying, look, there's a lot that you've been given. You're not in control of this. God is just good to people and you don't have any control over it. Yet, God says, for my part, can't I pity Nineveh, that great city, in which there are more than 120,000 people who can't tell their right hand from their left and also many animals. You see, Jonah decided, according to his bias, that God did not need to go to Nineveh. And God's like, my love is always bigger than yours. Where, were you, where are you holding back from missionally? Because God's already there. The last way that bias hurts us, church, is it destroys the unity of the body of Christ. Because bias involves pride and some level of contempt. Even in James's words, oh, look, you come sit here in this special place, wealthy person. And poor person, you go over there. Why? Because we're better than you. And pride uh, always elevates you a little bit above uh, somebody else and makes them a little bit lower, and that's the contempt. Jesus prays in the Gospel of John that his church would be one, that we would be one unified, united people. And every time we let bias creep into our lives, we start jeopardizing that because we start saying, well, some people are a little bit better than others. Therefore, we make decisions about how we treat them if we don't examine it. There are, about, uh, there are, there are 27 books in the, in the New Testament a guy named Paul, who I refer to a lot, wrote uh, 28% of those 27 books. It's too early for me to do the math. Paul wrote an awful lot of the New Testament. And, and something happened in, in, in the scholarship of Paul about 30 or 40 years ago where people started to realize that Paul had a really large agenda for the unity of the church. People had always known that Paul was very, very passionate about declaring that Jesus was Lord and how did Jesus' life and death and resurrection affect the world. But about 40 years ago, scholars began to discover through other ancient texts that Paul had a strong unity agenda in the world. Not the least of which was due to the fact that Gentiles and Jews who were ethnically different were coming together in the new one body. So if you've never heard Paul's unity agenda, his agenda to set aside bias, to be one people, let me just take you through most of his letters to the churches. So in Romans chapter 15, Paul says this, welcome each other in the same way that Christ welcomed you for God's glory. In the going deeper this week, I just kind of asked the question, how did Christ welcome you? Did he welcome you from a sense of pride and contempt? 
Or does he welcome you with open, compassionate arms? Does he not just see the physical, but he says, I see your heart. That's the way we're supposed to welcome other people. Book of 1 Corinthians chapter 1, Paul says, has Christ been divided? Was Paul crucified? He's writing this. Was Paul crucified for you? Were you baptized into Paul's name? Paul says, no, there's one body. It's unity. It's unified. Galatians chapter five, Paul says, you were called to freedom, brothers and sisters. Only don't let this freedom be an opportunity to indulge your selfish impulses, but serve each other. He goes on to say, all the law has been fulfilled in a single statement. Do what? Love your neighbor as yourself. Love your neighbor as yourself, which sounds an awful lot like Jesus' statement because, hello, it is what Jesus said. And then he says, if you bite and devour each other, if you let bias and pride and contempt come in, be careful that you don't get eaten up with one another. Ephesians 2, the whole book of Ephesians is laced through with unity language. Ephesians 2, Paul says, Christ himself is our peace. He made both Jews and Gentiles into one group with his body. He broke down the barrier of hatred that divided us. He canceled the detailed rules of the law so that he create how many new people? One. How many new people? One new person out of the two groups making peace. He reconciled them both as one body to God by the cross, which ended the hostility to God. In Ephesians chapter four, he says it this way, as a prisoner for the Lord, live, a, live as people worthy of the call you received. And sometimes we think of that like in terms of our individual life. Oh, I need to live my life. But Paul says, look, in this context, he's like saying, live this life collectively. Conduct yourselves with all humility, gentleness and patience. And then what does he say? Accept each other with love and make an effort to preserve the unity of the spirit. Why? Because you're one body. You're one body. Not a rich body and a poor body, not a black body and a white body and a Hispanic body. You're one body, church. There's one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all who is over all through all and in all. He's not done. Philippians 2, he says it this way. If there's any encouragement in Christ, any comfort, any sharing in the spirit, any sympathy, make my joy complete by being united and agreeing with one another. Don't do anything for selfish purposes, but in humility, think of others as what? Worse than you? Ah, Paul says, look, if you want to get this thing right, actually, why don't you just start from the position of thinking everybody's better than you? Colossians 3, which is just a beautiful passage of Scripture. Don't lie to each other. Take off the old human nature with its practices. And again, we think about this as in terms of our private sin. But in the context, you can see that Paul always has a corporate unity agenda. Take off the old human nature of bias, maybe, with its practices and put on the new nature, which is renewed in knowledge by conforming to the image of the one who created it. And then he says, in this image, there's neither Greek nor Jew, circumcised nor uncircumcised, barbarian, Scythian, slave nor free, but Christ is all things and 
what? In all people. In all people. When we let bias creep into our lives and we start to let it affect how we view other people, and if you took the implicit test, maybe you got a little wake-up call. Full disclosure, I did. I took that test this week. It showed me some some parts of my uh, life that I was not too thrilled about. But you got to know what you're up against before you can get your healing going on, right? A lot of us think, oh, I don't have a bias against everybody. Take the test and then come talk to me. So a few questions to think about. Uh, Who do I tend to make assumptions about? Who are those people groups? That when I pause, I go, oh, two seconds? Oh, I got a list. Now, in a way, that's natural. But it ain't necessarily good. What are those assumptions and those judgments? What do those assumptions say about me? Do they say that I'm a little bit drawn to pride and contempt? And how are they affecting my usefulness? Am I misjudging people because I'm not looking at their hearts? Am I holding back from going somewhere that God's telling me to go because, oh, God, because God, surely you don't love those people too. Or are you letting it jeopardize the unity of the body, maybe even in this church, maybe even in your growth group? What would it be like to turn away? Bible word, repent. What would it work? What would it look like to turn away from bias? And then how do I even start? This is a really cool thing as we, as we kind of wrap up. Um, I, was, I was reading this week while I was in the monastery uh, that um, there's wisdom out there that just says, you know how you start to get beyond this? You focus on the things that unite you. You focus on identity, on common identity. In our parlance, like we would say, look, look for the markers that identify you as like, hey, somebody's on my team. Now, we used to be notorious at E3 for making T-shirts. We don't make as much anymore. But even something as silly as a T-shirt, an external marker, can tell you we're the same. We don't have to focus on what divides us. We can focus on what unites us and let that be the starting point for conversation. Doesn't mean we don't have issues to sort out but I don't let the have, have to let my bias affect those. And, and the phrase that's been just resonating with me all week is just the approach that says, this is who we are. This is who we are. We're people who wear E3 t-shirts. We're people who, you know, worship Jesus. We're people who seek to follow him. And one of the books I was reading this week described this process that which we can kind of uh, work against our biases. And it's this beautiful process that says if, if a group of people do things together and, and cultivate a sense of belonging together and even talk about the things that they believe together, what that starts to do is it starts to form a common identity. And in spite of the snap judgments that they make, might make about physical appearances, they can go, no, actually we're one tribe. And I look at that and I'm like, boy, that certainly does look like the church. Believing things in worship, doing things in service, and belonging in growth groups.
and you lean into those things with your whole heart and you'd be surprised at who you can start to include in your vision of the kingdom. And the people that you go, oh, I don't know if I agree with them. You can go, no, 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 they're on my team. It's a strong team. I wanna show you something that just I love and, and I don't know if you'll get this. There's a, uh, in, in the country of New Zealand, right? Rugby is like the national sport. Anybody ever like watch a rugby match? Boy, you think, you think NFL players are tough? Woo! So New Zealand has a team called the All Blacks. They're the most dominant rugby team in the world. They win overwhelmingly more than any other team in the world. And because they're from New Zealand, uh, at the beginning of their matches, they do this thing called the haka. And it is a Maori war chant. And uh, there's all these videos on YouTube that show the team doing the haka. And uh, I wanna show you just a clip from an international rugby match with the All Blacks and the French team. So watch this, I'll tell you why in just a moment. love that. I watch Hakka videos all the time. Listen, what people have found is that when groups of people, even rugby teams, when they sing together, when they actually move together, when they sing common words together, actually what begins to happen in those moments is that they actually begin to cement, try, uh, uh, cement unity. So I'm going to ask you guys to stand up right now. We're going to close with a song. Singing is not just something that we do to pass the time here. It is actually a way that we remind ourselves that we are part of one common tribe, one body on this planet. And as we sing these words, they come from the book of Revelation. And if you don't know this, let me tell you, if you think that Revelation is going to look like only E3, if you, if you think that heaven and worship in heaven is gonna look like E3, it ain't. If you think that you're only gonna hear English when you get to worship God face to face, you're not. The vision that God has had from the very beginning is a multicultural, multi-ethnic, diverse kingdom. So Revelation chapter seven says this. 
This is a, 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 an image and a glimpse of what happens in heaven all the time. He says, after this, I looked. <laughs> and there was a great crowd that no one could number. And they were from every nation and every tribe and every people and every language. And they were standing before the throne and before the lamb and they wore white robes and held palm branches in their hands and they cried out with a loud voice, victory belongs to our God who sits on the throne and to the lamb. And all the angels stood in a circle around the throne and all the elders and the four living creatures and they fell face down before the throne and worshiped, not in English, saying, Amen. Blessing and glory and wisdom and thanksgiving and honor and power and might be to our God forever and always. Amen. Let us sing together for our God who calls us to a rich, unjudging, unbiased kingdom that is coming into this world and that calls us to be a witness of unity and acceptance and love to that world. Amen. Amen. Amen.